0: Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville, also streaming live at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 338. Today's topic is Regenerate Kentucky! Exclamation point. Regenerate Kentucky, subtitle, How to Restore the Ecological Vitality of Kentucky and Southern Indiana with what we eat and how we farm. So, this episode focuses on what we are presently doing wrong in the way we use the land to grow food. We will look at what we currently grow the most of, how it is harmful to our health and how it is harmful to the natural world. So, the question is, what if we could heal the climate while also restoring wildlife habitat, while also growing nutritious food and buying nutritious food? And what if we could do all that while reviving our local economies and what if we could do all that while still maintaining a reasonable degree of comfort. We're not talking about major sacrifices here and we're talking, in fact, we're talking about a move toward more freedom, a move toward more abundance, a move toward more health, a move move toward more natural abundance such as wildlife, bees, butterflies, birds, etc. And what if we could do all of the above while doing meaningful work and providing meaningful work for ourselves and for others in our community? And what if we could do all that while creating a local culture that will be the envy of the nation and the world. I believe all this is possible or I wouldn't be talking to you about it. So what we're going to focus on in this episode is what we're doing wrong. How are we doing stuff that is bad for our nutrition? How are we doing stuff that is bad for the natural world because we're doing a lot of stuff that's bad for the natural world. It's bad for our water. It's bad for our soil. It's bad for the bees, butterflies and birds. It's bad for the wildlife. It's bad for hunting if you are into that. But you know we need the natural world to live. We certainly need the natural world to live abundantly. We can't be killing off the natural world and expect to live abundantly. And we we wouldn't want to. Why would we want to do that? But what we're told is that a little bit of sacrifice to the natural world is a necessary evil. We gotta feed the world! We gotta feed the world! But that rhetoric comes from people who have no interest in feeding the world. But that's another conversation. So what is the status of our food system? We need to eat, but not all food systems are created equal. Some are better than others. Some are more natural than others. Some are more restorative than others. Some food systems are more regenerative than others. Some food systems produce healthy, nutritious food. But we have a food system that delivers cheap food but it's not nutritious food. It, 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 it's a system that is designed by and for what I call big food. It is designed by and for the big players. It's designed for corporations to make a profit. It is not designed for the well-being of our natural world. It is not designed for the well-being of the eater, the consumer and it is not designed the system that we have is not designed for the well-being of farmers so we we generate a lot of low-nutrient food that is good for the shelf life it's good for the profits it receives a lot of advertising and some of its quite tasty to be honest and there's nothing wrong with great taste but we eat a lot of processed foods and for people of limited means sometimes processed food is all a person can afford. Hence the discussion about food deserts. Now what is a food desert? The USDA defines a food desert as a place where you cannot get nutritious food within a mile. There are a lot of food deserts even in rural areas where there's a lot of quote-unquote food being grown but it's not good food. It's not nutritious food and quite often what's being grown does not even become food. For example, I just got back from a trip to Indiana and another trip to Central Kentucky. I went to Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, went to Springfield, Kentucky, went to Jasper, Indiana. You see a lot of corn and you see a lot of soybeans. So let's take corn as an example. When you see corn in the field, what's that corn going to become? Some of it, some of the corn you see that's growing in the field is going to be made into ethanol, which is a substitute for gasoline. Most cars can't run on 100 percent ethanol, so it's blended The gasoline gasoline and the ethanol are mixed together and the gasoline that you get might be 10% ethanol. But the Prez just raised that to 15%. So, Uncle Joe going to bat for us. Now we can now put 15% ethanol in the gas tanks. Okay, but notice we're not talking about food. We can talk about whether growing corn for ethanol achieves any of its stated purposes. Why do they grow corn for ethanol? They grow corn for ethanol because it's supposed to give us energy independence. You don't have to get tangled up with all those Middle East countries if you're growing your energy at home, except we still get tangled up with Middle East countries. Irrespective of whether we grow our food or whether we uh, get our energy at home or not so energy independence has always been 90 percent rhetoric and less than 10 percent reality the other thing that corn is grown for that is not really food not good food is high fructose corn syrup so high fructose corn syrup you know look at the label it's in a lot of stuff Used to be, if something was sweet, it was usually sweetened with cane sugar. Now, if something is sweet, especially if it's processed food, it's got, it's almost always got high fructose corn syrup. Presumably because that's less expensive for the producer. And so it's it's favorable to them. And I can guarantee, guarantee that high fructose corn syrup was developed at taxpayer expense using research and development credits using government-funded labs government-funded universities that's just the way these things go so high fructose corn syrup is not for your well-being or my well-being or the consumers well-being or even the farmers well-being it's for the well-being of a few big companies that reap most of the profits but that's how that's one of the major uses of corn is high fructose corn syrup and other kind of derivatives of corn that go into highly processed foods the single best discussion of this that I have read is from a book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivores dilemma. It has an excellent discussion of king corn. But notice corn, uh, it, some of it's not even grown for food, some of it is grown for something that is added to foods, but it has, it's devoid of nutrition. So just because stuff is growing in the fields doesn't mean it's food, and if it is food, doesn't mean it's good for you and we're subsidizing all this stuff. So when you talk about high fructose corn syrup, it it is a less expensive sugar substitute um, and it's used in processed foods. Nothing wrong with processed food in moderation, but we're not talking about moderation here we eat a lot of processed foods we make a lot of processed foods we sell a lot of processed foods and we the taxpayers subsidize a lot of processed foods and too often processed food is a substitute for real food processed food is a substitute for nutritious food so we the taxpayers of America massively subsidized processed food i.e. junk food in other words we the taxpayers pay the government and then the government pays the farmers in the form of something called crop insurance and another something called guaranteed minimum payments but it's taxpayer money crop insurance bails out the farmer in the case of crop failures sounds like a good idea but you don't get this for your nice little local regenerative biologically diverse farm you only get it for these massive crops that are bad nutritionally and bad for the environment now there is a number how much farm profit to take farm profits not farm revenues but farm profits so you know a business can only stay in business if it makes a profit consistently So it's interesting to look at how much of farm profits are a result of taxpayer subsidies because if you take the taxpayer subsidies away then that's going to diminish the profits and some businesses are going to go out of business. So I said there's a number that represents how much taxpayer-funded subsidies is responsible for the profits, and that number is 39%. 39% of all farm profits are from crop insurance and other subsidies, according to agriculture.com. In an article written December 3rd, 2020, by Chuck Abbott, the title of the article is Record-High Ag Subsidies to Supply 39% of Farm Income. In other words, if it weren't for the taxpayer funded government support, 39% of all farm profits would go away and many farmers would go out of business. Now, you don't like to think of people going out of business. You don't like to think of farmers going out of business, but, and we could, but we're subsidizing the wrong behaviors. We should subsidize, We should withdraw the subsidies because there's just a whole lot of mischief in the subsidies and the people that are benefiting the most are not the average consumer or the average farmer or the average taxpayer or the average seller of food the average grocer average people are not the ones that are benefiting it's the big players that are benefiting from the subsidies And we're subsidizing commodity crops. So in the next section, we're going to talk about how this heavily subsidized type of farming, such as it is, is bad not only for our nutrition, but it's also bad for our environment, for our water quality, for bees, butterflies, and birds, for the soil, etc. We'll talk about that after the break so what we're doing here is subsidizing the very worst practice we're talking about you know the topic is hey what if we could heal the climate and restore wildlife habitat all the while growing nutritious food all the while having nutritious food that we can buy? And what if we can do all that while reviving local economies? And what if we can do all that while still maintaining reasonable degrees of comfort? What if we can do that while moving toward more freedom, moving toward more abundance? What if we could do all of that while providing meaningful work for ourselves and others and creating a local economy and a local culture that will be the enemy excuse me the envy of the nation and the world we won't be anybody's enemy except as always will be the enemy of people who profit from the status quo even if it's very toxic and destructive so that's what we, want, what we want to get to is a food system that is much, 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 much better in every way than what we have now. And in order to point to the need for a better food system, we have to talk about how bad our food system is now and in what ways our food system is bad. Because we're not going to solve a problem unless people perceive that there's a problem. We have to frame the problem as something that people want to solve. We want to frame the problem as something that people are motivated to solve. But we don't have to exaggerate, we don't have to be sensationalistic, we just have to tell it like it is. So I'm going to tell it like it is about how our food system currently is bad for the environment, especially the food system that has, you know genetically modified corn, as far as the eye can see, and genetically modified soybeans, as far as the eye can see. In other words, we're going to talk about how we use the land for purposes that are destructive and toxic. So here's what I'm talking about. Do you want to know how to destroy the environment with farming? Here's how you do it. Uh, Tillage is one way you do it, and pesticides, that means insecticides, fungicides, herbicides, and also chemical fertilizers. That's how you destroy the environment with farming. And that's, we're doing all of that. We're doing all of that. So tillage is really bad. Here's why. So tillage meaning plowing. Take a plow and somehow you're, you're churning up the soil. And the reason that's bad is because It's like soil has a structure and when you take a plow and you plow through it, it destroys the structure of the soil. Good soil is like a sponge in that, you know, a sponge, let's say it's a dry sponge. If it's a dry sponge and you pour water on it, then that sponge is going to soak up the water. Soil is the same way if the soil is, let's say it's been a while since it's rained well good soil is still going to be a little bit moist because good soil tends to hold water a whole lot longer than bad soil. But let's say it's getting a little dry and those air pockets in the soil are going to fill up with water and that's a very 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 good thing because for one thing it rains Those air pockets fill up with water and then when the water is flowing downward, it sucks more air into the soil from the surface. That's how soil is supposed to function. Tillage destroys all that because it's like this, soil, a lot of it is mineral particles. The mineral particles are sand, silt, and clay. Clay is the smallest particle, silt is in between. And sand is the biggest particle, but it takes all, and, there, and there's going to be air pockets in between. There's air pockets in between. Why? Why you might ask? Are there air pockets in the soil? And the reason is because the soil has organic matter. The organic matter of soil might be three percent, it might be five percent. Most most of the time, five percent organic matter is darn good. But whatever is the optimal amount of organic matter in the soil. For that region, it, that organic matter is c- going to kind of be bed springs. It's kind of it's like a spring in between those mineral particles, and it creates a space for water and for air. Plus, that organic matter is a house in which living things live. Bacteria, protozoa, fungi, little microscopic worms called nematodes. That they live in those structure in that kind of they live in those air pockets and then they make more tunnels everything makes a tunnel about the size of what it is so bacteria make little bitty tunnels protozoa make bigger tunnels nematodes make slightly bigger tunnels worms make bigger tunnels insect larvae make big tunnels but they make these tunnels in the ground and then when it rains the rain is able to soak in to those tunnels. Without those tunnels, also called pores, p-o-r-e-s, also described as porosity. Adjective is porous, or and the noun is poro- uh, the Another adjective, or what? What is it? Porosity sound Porosity is an abstract noun, but it's these pores. It's these pore spaces. And it is absolutely critical for living soil to have those pore spaces. Otherwise, it will not be living soil. And tillage destroys all that. You go through with a plow, you break apart that sponge, and then it rains, and then all of those mineral particles sink into the holes, and it's bad and that's, how you, that's not only how you kill the soil but it's how you get erosion. If I told you how much erosion there is per acre every year in tilled soils you would not believe me because it's many tons per acre. And it's like our biggest export is soil because there's more soil leaving our country than anything else. It get, goes down the rivers and out into the oceans where it cannot do any good, but that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing with tillage. Tillage is very, very bad, and we're subsidizing the tillage. Where, wherever you see corn and soy, sometimes it's no-till. That's another conversation, but way too much of it is tilled. By no-till, I mean they've figured out a way to do the crop where they don't have to till, and that, so that's good as far as it goes. But that's another conversation and still way too much cropland is done with tillage. So tillage kills the soil. Also, most corn and soy cropland uses glyphosate or roundup. Glyphosate is an herbicide, that means it kills weeds or plants. Herb in that root uh, herb as a root word in herbicide means plants. So herbicide means kill. So kill plant herbicide kills plants. So glyphosate is a plant killer. It is used on a large scale. I'll tell you how large in just a minute. But glyphosate has been linked to cancer, notably non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. According to Beyond Pesticides, and I recommend that you you know any beyondpesticides.org is an excellent website. So according to Beyond Pesticides despite the prevalent myth that this widely used herbicide is harmful as harmless, glyphosate is associated with a wide range of illnesses including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, genetic damage, liver and kidney damage, endocrine disruption, that means it messes with your hormones and it's all also associated with environmental damage including water contaminations no crap water contaminations because all this stuff because of the tillage and because your soil is not worth a darn it all flows into the streams and waterways so despite this toxicity the EPA reports that there are approximately 280 million pounds 280 million pounds of Glyphosate applied every year to about the same number of acres. So it's about a pound of glyphosate per acre. It's also about two-thirds of a pound of glyphosate per person. And of course, of course this gets into our food, it gets into our water. It also it's everywhere. Glyphosate is freaking everywhere. It's in our blood, it's in our urine, it's in organic farms, it's in organic cereals. It's like what are we doing to ourselves? That's why on subsequent episodes when we're talking about regenerate Kentucky, let's use our food system to regenerate the land, we're going to talk about, hey, How about if we buy our food from farmers that are not destroying the land and the water and the wildlife? Hey, how about that? We might have to pay a little more, but it will be worth it. And you don't, you know, you pay a little more for food, a little bit less for health care, a little bit less in terms of the degradation of the entire world. But I digress. So we've talked about that, you know, the the way that we use much of our land, if not most of our farmland, is in monocultures such as corn and soy. It, I mean, it's, you know, we, and it, it destroys the soil because of the tillage, because of the chemical fertilizers, because of toxic pesticides. In the next episode, we're going to talk about, you know, what is a monoculture and why are monocultures bad, especially for the environment, why are monocultures bad for wildlife especially? Why do we not want to grow our food in monocultures? Why, and A monoculture is like one crop as far as the eye can see. Why do we not want to grow our food in monocultures? So I've got about one minute left. Let me leave you with something to think about. So the idea of this whole episode is that with every bite we eat, we can be helping to regenerate the earth because farming can be done in a way that regenerates the earth and it can be done in a way that grows nutritious food. And nobody is more powerful in that scenario than the consumer you know I wish we had a government that is by the people for the people that of by and for the people that that's the rhetoric that we get that's the propaganda that we get unfortunately that it's not that way there may come a time in the future hopefully there will come a time in the future when we can actually have control of our government so that public policy works for us in our food system, currently public policy is not for the people in our food system. Public policy currently is for these big institutions that they own, you know, the wealthy and the big institutions, the big corporations, they own our elected officials and they have captured the regulatory agencies otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation so it's a problem to be addressed and we will pick it up next time I just want to remind you that we could have a food system that works for us and as much as we might hope for better public policy it starts with the consumer right now the consumer is all we've got That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a nice day.